please stand with me as we read today's scripture from Judges 2, verses 6 through 14. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they can no longer withstand their enemies. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks for reading that cheery text. But I picked that text because it gives us a tone for the book of Judges. If you've been with us for a while, you know that in the summertime, we we take some time to teach whole books of the Bible. So what we practice here is called expository preaching, which basically means the message of the text is the message of the sermon. You can do that with one verse, you can do that with a paragraph, a chapter, or as you're seeing here, a whole book of the Bible. And so we've we've been walking, we did two last summer, we'll do five or six this summer, and And today we are on Judges. If you were with us for numbers, you heard me say that sometimes the way we name, we've named these books in the English language doesn't do them any favors. A title like Numbers isn't really enticing, doesn't draw you in. The original Hebrew title was Into the Wilderness, which I think I probably would have read Numbers a few more times as a new Christian if it had been named Into the Wilderness in the English language. And Judges has a similar issue in the naming because when you hear the word judge, what do you think of? courtroom. You might think of a, of a judge handing down his or her verdict on somebody, but that's not at all what's going on here. That's not the picture we're supposed to have. If we could rename the book of Judges today, and I'm not suggesting we rename a book of the Bible, but if we could in something that might be a little more helpful, uh, maybe a title like Deliverers would be, would be more appropriate because what these judges are, they are men and women in, the, in this unique time in Israel who are called to deliver the Israelites from the consequences of their sin and set them on the right path. And so this, this book of Judges, it spans between two and 400 years, depending on how you interpret certain things, somewhere between two and 400 years. And it exists in this incredibly bleak and even gruesome time in Israelite history. If you were to do a movie on the book of Judges, you would not be faithful if you had anything less than an R rating. I mean, Judges is full of horrible things. You see death, slaughter, human sacrifice, betrayal, illicit sex, and scandals all across the board. That's the book of Judges. 
But it's also unique because it exists in this time where there's this void of leadership. So you have before Judges, you know, Moses and Joshua. After Judges, you have the monarchy and the kings. But right now, you have this period where they lack leadership. Not only have they, it seems, displaced God in their hearts as their king, there is no earthly king to remind them of what they need to do, call them out on their sins, and so you just have this weird void of leadership. And this is why you have at least four times in the book of Judges this, this familiar, if you, if you are familiar with your Old Testament, familiar phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. That's not good. So you, you, you had, there, God was not king in their hearts. There was no formal king. And so the result was they did whatever it is that they wanted to do. And that kind of sets up the bleak picture that is the book of Judges. Now, we're gonna end with some hope. I promise you we're gonna get to some hope, but I don't wanna skirt around the bleak, gruesome, grim, dark tone that you have in the book of Judges. It's there for a reason. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at the book of Judges and see first why it is that the people needed Judges. Then I wanna see the purpose of Judges for that, that Israelite audience. And then lastly, the purpose of the book of Judges for us today. So why did God's people, these Israelites need Judges? Because of their sin is the simple answer. So the book, in, in chapter one, it begins with a continuation of the conquest of Israel. So Joshua's gone fairly well. They've been conquering the promised land. The beginning of chapter one, Joshua's still leading. They're conquering these people and these people as God has told them to do. But then you have verse 19. And if you, if you know what's going on, verse 19 should set all kinds of alarms off in your head because there is a serious tone change that happens right here. Verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah and he, put, and he took possessions of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So think about it. Joshua, first half of Judges, they took this people and this town and this city and this land. And then we get here, but they couldn't do it because they have chariots of iron. So I, I mean, never mind that it's the God of Israel who the God of the universe who parted the Red Sea, delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. These guys have chariots of iron. So like, you should feel like this, this doesn't line up. And then in the very next verse, we have the story of the tribe of Joseph going to the city of Bethel, which they have been told to take. And they, the spies that the tribe of Joseph sends out, they, they see a man outside of Bethel and they talk to him and they said, hey, if you'll show us an easy way into this town, we will be kind to you. And that's exactly what happened. The man showed them an easy way into town and let the man and his family go free. So what's the problem? What had God commanded them to do? Take everything and wipe out everyone. And, and if that sounds harsh, you might wanna go back last week and listen to Dr. Reed's sermon on Joshua. He addresses this, but by way of reminder, Israel is not spiritually you know, or, or morally more righteous than these people. God is basically killing two birds with one stone here. He has a land that he wants to give Israel, but he also has a people that have done horrible, horrible things. And God 
has decided to act a, a exact judgment on them. And Israel just happens to be the tool that God uses. So if you want to, again, hear more about that, go back to Dr. Reed's sermon. But the problem is that God had told them to do something and they didn't do it. God told them, wipe out all these people. This isn't about you. This is about me. I have my own reasons. But Israel doesn't. They, these guys have chariots of iron. These, this man was nice to us. And because they didn't do what God said to do. He says, all right, these inhabitants, they're, they're going to remain. And they're going to be a thorn in your side as you try and settle and dwell in the promised land. And if that wasn't bleak enough, in the next verse, Joshua dies. So when we think about sin, I know we, we tend to think about sin in terms of doing these bad things that we're not supposed to do. And that is definitely sin. But there's a whole other kind of sin that is omitting to do the things that we should do. So we call that the sin of omission, omitting to do the things that God wants us to do. And that kind of sin is easy to, the weight of it can be lost because we can so easily justify it or, or let ourselves off on a technicality. Like, you know, when you, you, your kids are supposed to brush their teeth and you ask them, did you brush your teeth? They say, yes. And there's a pause and your parental intuition kicks in and you say, did you brush your teeth today? Well, no. I mean, you, you, you just asked me to brush my teeth. Well, that, you, you know what I'm talking about. That's a technicality. You did not do what I wanted you to do. Or we can justify, like, I did, I did my part or kind of half, half obedience, half-hearted obedience. Did you clean the playroom? I told you to clean the playroom. Well, I cleaned part of the playroom that I messed up. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, this is te- we told you to do something, and you didn't do it. And we, like our children, like the Israelites, we do the same thing. We can create technicalities or justifications and say things like, God just wasn't clear enough to me. You know, I, I, maybe I should have broken up with that person I wasn't supposed to be dating, but God just wasn't clear enough to me. Kind of like Gideon putting out that, that fleece. I just need God to be clear. You already know what you're supposed to do, but you, God, you justify it because God didn't write it in the sky with a plane or neon signs or something. Or... You know, we think, God, I, I, I would like to be generous, but there's this outfit that I really need, and you know that I can really use it, and so we can justify not doing the things that we are supposed to do on technicalities, which is exactly what the Israelites are doing. Well, that guy was nice, and he helped us. These people had chariots of iron. The Israelites can say whatever they want to say but they didn't do what it is that God told them to do, and that's serious. And it's especially serious when you consider this generation who has, is not only being told by the God of the universe, they have been rescued from slavery through all these miracles and wondrous signs, and they have been delivered into the promised land. And then some unknown period of time passes, and in chapter two, verse 10, we read, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, a very well-known passage that really lets you know things are not going well. Chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. Then there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
So this is a major failure. If you remember Clark teaching on Deuteronomy a few weeks ago, one of the main things that God told the Israelites to do was to teach your children about him. Teach your children who he is, what his ways are, his mighty works. Tell them when they lie down, when they rise, when you walk by the way, you are to hand this faith down. And now, not only are they not walking with God, this whole generation hadn't even heard. I mean, just think what a colossal failure it would be if this church, both services, we looked one, two generation down the line and none of our children and grandchildren not only were walking with the Lord, but had even heard. I mean, it's one thing, people are gonna go the different directions, but to say they didn't even know, they had never even heard the work of the Lord, what a colossal failure that would be in this church. And this is happening to an entire generation of God's people in the Old Testament. And then it becomes this slippery slope from acts of omission to not not doing the things that you're supposed to do, not taking the land, not teaching your children into these acts, these sins of commission, committing sins that you're not supposed to do. Look here, next verse, 211. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. These are their false gods. So what was, if you remember, what was one of the main things that Israel was told not to do? Make covenants with anyone. God said, I've made a covenant with you. Don't make a covenant with anyone. And not only have they made covenants at this point with people in the land, now they're making covenants with their false gods, with the Baals. And I, when I was looking at this week, I had just a, just a hot minute of a season where I was thinking, man, I'm glad I didn't do that. I'm glad I haven't made a, a covenant with an idol. Well, if you're like that with me, you might want to think that through a little bit. Because an idol is anything that we go to for fulfillment or satisfaction that only God can give us. And we make a covenant with an idol when we have some sort of contract with that idol in a way where blessings and curses are included. So sex and money are are the easy ones to look at. But whatever it is that we go to for the fulfillment that only God should give us, and we make that kind of contract where if I'm faithful, then I expect blessings. And if I'm not, I can anticipate curses. And then vice versa, if this thing is faithful to me, I should bless it. If it's not, I should curse it. You may not be thinking covenant language in your mind, but by any reasonable definition, that is a covenant. So they're not only making covenants with the people they're not supposed to make covenants, they're now making covenants with idols. And every covenant we make with an idol, whether it's a bail or whether it's a resume, it will let you down. When I, I can remember my, my senior year at Florida State, my plan at that point or desire was to be governor of the state of Florida. And I was looking at my resume and, and largely, you know, I, the, the, I had put together a resume that, that should have satisfied me, that could have launched me into that world. And I remember looking at it and just being frustrated because it didn't give me the joy and the satisfaction that I wanted it to. And the reason is because I was making a kind of covenant with something that is dead. Something that is dead cannot be in a covenant. It can't give me something that only God is designed to give me. It doesn't matter how faithful 
you think you are, how promising you think it is, the idol, whatever it is, does not have the power to give you the peace, the security, the joy, the comfort, the satisfaction, whatever it is, because it is dead. As dead as the false god Baal. But it still doesn't stop us. I was, you know, I think I, my train of thought was thinking about the resume and then I started thinking about college more. And I've, I know I've told this story before, but when I was in college, I went on a date party where we got on one of these ships in the Gulf that went just far enough out where it was legal to gamble. And, and I knew, I had my $20 and I knew when, when my $20 was, was gone, that was it. I, I was okay with that. And my $20 was gone surprisingly fast. I put it all on black, into my night. But a couple hours later, we we're on our way in and I remember seeing this older woman. And I remember thinking, she's a lot older. Looking back, she's probably my age, like right now. But I looked at her and you couldn't help but notice her. She's sitting at the the, the slot machines with tears just rolling down her cheeks. And not just tears, but she's like, like convulsingly crying as she put in coin after coin after coin. And I I don't know if she went on that cruise as a last ditch effort to make up for money she'd lost somewhere else. I don't know if she lost more money on the cruise than she was anticipating, maybe both. But in that moment, she had a covenant relationship with those machines where she's really asking it to give her something that it wouldn't and couldn't. And I say couldn't because even if she had won the jackpot at that moment, that while she may feel delivered for a time, it wasn't going to fix all the underlying problems that had led her to that place where her hope was in this machine above everything else. And when we look to money for our ultimate security, when we look to sex for our ultimate satisfaction, when we look to grades or vocation for our ultimate form of purpose, we are making a kind of religion out of it. We're making a covenant with us, a contract with it, and not only will that always let us down, it actually has dire consequences, just like it did for the Israelites. And you can see that in the next verse, chapter two, verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went out, they went after other gods from among the other gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So here's the crux of the problem in Judges. God was not king over their hearts. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. That led them to idolatry and there was no king to point it out. There was no king to help them correct their course. No one else stood up amongst them. So the result is that they begin to follow these idols. They look to Baal for their comfort and their purpose and their security. And I really appreciate the way Dr. Reed said this last week. Before we're too harsh, you know, looking at these Israelites, we should realize they're not asking anything more out of their idols than we're asking of ours. We're in the same situation. But as a consequence for their sin, God brings judgment In chapter two, and this is where he says, all right, you're not gonna do what I told you to do. You're going to abandon me. I am going to give you over to the inhabitants. Not only are they a thorn in your side, they're going to attack you. And in many cases, they are actually going to overcome you. And this is when 
the people begin to see judges. So that's why they needed judges. Now we get to see the purpose of the judges. The main point, the main reason the judges come in is because the Israelites repent at some point because they're being attacked, they're being taken over, and every time they repent, God gives them a judge to deliver them from the reasonable consequences of their sin and hopefully set them back on the right course. So there are 12 judges. There are four that are really famous. Who are the four that everybody knows? Samson, who else? Deborah, Gideon, one more. Jephthah, those are the big four. There's more written on them. The others that just don't flow off the top of your tongue quite as well, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Isban, Elon, and Abdon. And what you see in these 12 judges is the same cycle on repeat. It's just same thing. The people sin, there are consequences for their sin in the form of the people who dwell there, taking them over, attacking them. They repent and God sends them a judge or a deliverer. Then again, somewhere else, the people sin. God, there are consequences for doing that in the form of the inhabitants. And then the people repent and God sends them somebody to deliver them. It's the same pattern on repeat. And I think one of the main things that we're supposed to see in these 12 judges is the necessity of and the promise in repentance. It flies all over me that Christianity is seen by so many as this holier than thou, prideful, condescending group of people who just look down on everybody else. When at the very heart of what we believe, the, the first step that anybody has to take to be a Christian is to admit that we can't do it. Admit that we are wrong. And, and like everything about this perception of prideful Christianity is antithetical to the whole foundation upon which it's built. Our sinful nature, our fallen nature, our inability to be God over our own lives. And so the first step in our faith, it isn't the 12 steps, it isn't the five pillars, it isn't even going to church and memorizing our sacred text. The first step is simply saying, I can't do it. And I'm going to turn from my sin and turn towards God. But you know, it's easy to forget how hard this is. You know, especially if you've never done this before how hard it is to really come to that point. That everything that I've invested in, all my time and energy, everything to try and make my life right, to admit that's not gonna do it. That will not do it. You can't get there that way. I was remembering this morning, I wish I could cite it, but I just remember this morning, it was a letter from a, a, a duchess in the 1800s over in Britain to another duchess, I think. And she was, she was writing about the, um, the Puritans. And she was talking about how absurd it is that they expect nobles to admit failure and, and embrace sin and confess sin. She, and she was writing, this is antithetical to everything that, that is great about nobility. She just can't believe the goal of these Puritans to insist that she or anybody else of her statue would admit to being a sinner. And it's not just a British problem, you know, over here on this side of the pond, I, we have some, some public figures who display the same kind of rigidity towards admitting that, that we can't do this on our own. In 2014, the former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, of New York City, he was being interviewed by The Atlantic, and he was kind of talking about all the things that he had done for New York City, and the, the conversation shifted toward religion. And he said, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. 
I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. And, and whenever I attack one side of the aisle, I try to, try to be fair and go both ways. And so the next year in 2015 at the Family Leadership Summit, uh, then aspiring President Trump was being interviewed and they asked him if he's ever asked God for the forgiveness of his actions. And he responded, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. Friends, repentance is not bondage, it's freedom. Repentance is not failure, it's success. It's the freedom of going to the God of the universe and saying, I admit everything I'm doing is not working. I will not find the satisfaction and joy and security that I'm seeking through any of these things, through any of these idols, because that's what they are when we're looking for that. I can only find it in you and successfully handing your life over to the one who can only, the only one who can successfully give you those things. That's that's freedom, the freedom of repenting of your sins that the Israelites are constantly reminded of through these judges. That's why they're there. But these judges all have major shortcomings. If you look at these, these judges, they only deliver a part of the Israelite people for a part of the time. And there's this misconception that these judges are like kings and they lead all of Israel at, at one time. But Israel is, you know, they're divided up by tribes in each of their allotted areas. And for the most part, what's going on here is going on reg- regionally. So probably Jephthah and Samson are actually happening at the same time, chronologically. And so they're only delivered partially in terms of geography. They're only delivered partially in terms of a, a, a time period because they, they're delivered, but then in, it seems like in every case, the people go back to their sin, that the delivery is incomplete. And then you get just one more nudge of hopelessness. When you look at these judges and you see the way that they're arranged, there's this, this chronological moral decay. There's this moral decline among the judges themselves from Othniel to Samson. And so you have Deborah, who is a woman, which is not bad, but in that day, you would not have had a woman as a tribal leader, so that would have been seen as a curse of some sort. Uh, Gideon, who is the son of idolaters. Jephthah, who makes a covenant with a man that results in the death of his daughter. And then you have Samson, who is a total mess. He is violent, he is deceptive, he is vengeful, and he pretty much fails to uh, follow through on any commitment that he had made. So they do their job, but you get this picture of the futility of of these men and women to ultimately give Israel what it is that they're longing for. Each of these judges has significant moral failure, but what we can't overlook is the quality that made them a judge, the quality that made them helpful for Israel at that time is faith. You know, when I was at RTS, I had to write a paper on how in the world Samson who are like two good things recorded in all those chapters that he did, how he ended up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, it's called hall of faith, not hall of good works. And and so these men and Deborah, they had a certain amount of faith at the right time. They believed God was who he says he is and could do what he said he would do. And they represented and led Israel in that time out of that faith. And for that reason, the author of Hebrews records... And what more shall I say? 
for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So thinking about the quality that, even there's a bleak picture, we want to acknowledge the quality that made these judges judges, why they ended up the hall of faith. And I was talking this week with Robert Jackson and he, you know, he has these great off the cuff quotes. And he said, you know, judges shows that even a band-aid office with a faithful man is better than the ideal man, worldly speaking, in the ideal office who is not faithful. I want to read that one more time. Judges showed that even a band-aid office with a faithful man is better than the ideal man, worldly speaking, in the ideal office who is not faithful. So the greatest quality that we can hope for in ourselves, in any position of leadership that we find ourselves in, and the leaders we follow, is that we would or they would faithfully follow God through repentance, repentance and faith. And this is what the judges do. They walk with the Israelites through their repentance and faith. So, what does this book say to us today? This is the last thing. We, do we just shelve it and look at it as a piece of history? No. We are supposed to finish reading this book and feel exhausted. Absolutely worn out. Maybe a little despairing. Because even though the people do repent at times and God gives, he delivers them temporarily, when we get to the last five chapters of this book, there is no repentance Anywhere we see the private sin has really begun to take hold of them and a civil war breaks out. And so at the end of the book, Israel is asking God, who is it that's supposed to, who is it that we should send first against the Benjamites during the civil war? Judges 21, 25. Well, and then let me come back to that. So the book ends with a civil war and it ends with the same depressing line, 21, 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges is supposed to leave us longing for a king. That's what they were longing for. That's what we should be longing for here. The repeated theme in Judges is sin, repentance, delivery. Sin, repentance, delivery. But in Judges, that delivery is only for a limited period of time. It has to be done over and over again. It isn't fully accomplished. Uh, they, it's only a, limited to a geographic area. People end up in their sin again. And you, the book leaves you wondering, well, will a king be able to fix this? I mean, we've had warnings from God. We've had priests from God. We have prophets from God. We've had judges from God. None of that has really accomplished ultimately what we know God wants to accomplish with his people. So is a king, maybe? Is that the thing that we're supposed to be longing for? And there's this misconception that Israel was wrong to ask for a king. That is not biblically accurate. Israel was not wrong to ask for a king. Moses was given by God instructions. When, you, when the day comes that you get a king, here's what you should know about having a king. The problem was the way that they asked for a king. They asked for a king so that they could be like other nations. So God's people are supposed to be set apart but they were just becoming like the land that they had entered, like the people that they were supposed to conquer, the people they were supposed to displace. And so the land and the people that they were supposed to conquer was now conquering them. Mark Dever, preaching on this book, he says, God would let this sinful people 
who were determined not to rely on him, rely on every other possible means until every other possible means was exhausted. Finally, they would learn that the only one who could save them was God himself. And then they would turn to him. This book doesn't just leave us longing for a king in general. It leaves us longing for the promised king of of Genesis 49, the one who would come from the line of Judah, who wouldn't just be king of Israel, but be the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior that would reverse the curse and make all in the world the way that it was supposed to be. Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the power, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I don't know if you noticed this. In the beginning and the end of Judges, Judah stands as bookends. So in chapter one, they're going into the promised land, they're conquering, Judah's leaving. In chapter 20, they're at war, civil war with the Benjamites and the Israelites cry out to God, God, who do we send first? Judges 20.10, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah. Judah should go first. So this is really important. We're seeing that we know the promise of Judah. Judah is special. Judah goes forward. There's a promised king coming from that line. And in the very next book, 1 Samuel, we get that king. We get a king in the line of Judah. Everybody's wondering, could it be David? It wasn't Moses. It wasn't these, these judges. Could David be that king? And he was the greatest king in the history of Israel, but he failed. He committed adultery, he committed murder, and, and there was so much blood on his hands that he wasn't even allowed to see the temple built. Well, then his son, could Solomon be that? He, he oversaw the greatest kingdom that Israel ever knew. He's from the line of Judah. Could he be the one from Genesis chapter 49? Well, because of Solomon's indiscretions, not only does that kingdom fall apart, Israel then has to be led by not only evil kings, but pagan kings as they are exiled from the promised land. And in the whole of the Old Testament is asking the question, who is this Genesis 49 one to come? Who is this king that Judges is saying that we need? Who is this person? And in the original order of the Old Testament canon, the way the Hebrews ordered the, the Old Testament, the last book is Second Chronicles. And at the very end, the last passage of the Old Testament in the, the Hebrew canon, the people are exiled. And the question at the end of the canon is, who is going to go back to the promised land? And who is going to be the one who provides the king that is going to make everything the way that it should be? And the pagan king Cyrus actually, through the spirit of God working in him, said, Judah. Judah is the one. Let Judah go. Judah's going to go to the promised land. That's the end of the Old Testament. Where is our hope? Our hope is in the line of Judah. Turn one page in hundreds of years to Matthew, and what do we see? A genealogy of the one who has come through the line of Judah, the one who is a better prophet than Moses, who is a better priest than Samuel, who is a better judge than Gideon, who is a better king than David, who will oversee a kingdom more grand than that of Solomon. All of this is fulfilled through the line of Judah in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, who has been delivered over to pay the punishment of our sin that we don't have to. Jesus, who has fulfilled all the requirements of the covenant so that we don't have to look to make covenant with other dead things. And, and to circle all the way back, we talked about the sin of omission and how you know, we, can, we can not see the weight of it because it's so easy to justify and get off on technicalities. But the greatest sin that any of us could ever commit is a sin of omission. Omitting to embrace Jesus as that king as the one who is prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, the one who judges foreshadows, the one who the whole of the Old Testament looks forward to. If we don't acknowledge Jesus as king, not just as a good person, but king over every aspect of our life, we commit the greatest sin that could possibly be committed, and the effects are not only dire, they are eternal. The book of Judges calls us to ask ourselves the most important question we can ask. What are we hoping in? Because we live in a world that does what is right in our own eyes. I mean, if that doesn't describe our world, I, I don't know what does. Our culture does what is right in our own eyes. Our world makes covenants with all kinds of idols, wanting them to give us something that they can't because they're dead. Our world is not that unlike the culture the Israelites found themselves in. And so like the Israelites, the book of Judges wants us to ask what it is that we are hoping in. Are we gonna let the land and the culture we live in take over us? Or are we going to declare that Jesus is king over every aspect of our lives, the big things, the little things? This is the call of the book of Judges. Jesus is that king. And not just king in a way of a technicality or an association. I, I fall into this group of people called Christians. A king who has genuine authority over every area of our life. That's the king promised in Genesis 49. That's the king that Judges is alluding to. That's the king that all of the Old Testament is building toward and the king that we read about in the New Testament the risen Lord Jesus Christ who will come back one day and rid us of every ailment, hindrance, sin, and anything else that causes us pain and tears in this life, who will make everything right in the world, who will bring shalom the way that it was originally designed to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the book of Judges isn't just some one-off historical book to tell us something about the history of Israel, but it is, it is one piece of the larger story of redemptive history you have handed down to us in the 66 books of the Bible. And it is powerful because it's a part of the story of your redemption of your people through Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be more uh, interested in going back and reading it and hearing these different stories of judges. I pray that we would see ourselves as that holy army, Lord, that called to be set apart, not to displace people as they were, but to bring people into your kingdom. God, we pray that we would be a light on a hill, that we would be an encouragement to those around us, and that we would all see ways that... Uh, that we're not living out the authority of King Jesus in our lives and that you would 
you would give us a heart that wants to repent, a heart that wants to be free, a heart that wants to be yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.